G'day everyone, welcome to the Scalots Podcast for this week. We are going to be chatting today with Mike Trigg, who is a really experienced AI investor, a founder, and also a recent author of a great book about kind of the uh, the underbelly of Silicon Valley uh, and some of the moral uh, dilemmas and ethical dilemmas that are faced by founders, you know, trying to scale up. And um, today, given ChatGPT has just kind of opened a lot of business owners um, thinking around AI. How do I use AI? What are some of the considerations? And, the, you know, there's a lot of things that you may not have given consideration to yet as you start to play with, adopt, try, you know, um, test out different AI tools in your business. So today's um, today's a bit of an exploration uh, between Mike and I around some of the current AI tools, the implications of some of those, some of the use cases for you, that you to think about, but also some of the, the, the risks and some of the things you're really going to have to give some consideration to around how it biases, you know, how it might uh, accelerate or actually even deepen biases that you've already got in your decision-making processes around things like I don't know, how you hire people or the way you make decisions in your service delivery. Uh, equally, there are, of course, privacy concerns. Um, how is your data being used? If you've got some AI tool that's referencing a major data set that you've got that's got customer data, well, how do you make sure that that customer data is protected? Do you even have the rights to use that customer data um, and have it integrate with your AI tool? So there are a lot of considerations coming up um, for us. And so we've tried to make today really practical uh, and explorational, uh, but I think it's a great conversation and a really topical conversation at the moment. So I hope you enjoy listening today uh, to the conversation between myself and Mike Trigg. Welcome to the Scale-Ups Podcast, where each week you get to hear Sean Steele, professional CEO, growth mentor, and advisory board chair, unpack the strategies that successful founders have used to achieve scale in their businesses. Stay tuned as he interviews the entrepreneurs who've made it, learns from industry experts, and follows a group of founders still striving to scale. G'day, everyone, and welcome to the Scale-Ups podcast, where we help first-time founders learn the secrets of scaling so they can fulfill the potential of their businesses, uh, make bigger decisions with greater confidence, and maximize the value and impact they can create in the world. I'm your host, John Steele, uh, and today my guest is Mike Trigg. Welcome to the show, Mike. How are you today? Thanks, John. I'm great. Happy to be here. Right, beautiful. Uh, beautiful to see you. You are a... 25 year veteran that's make that makes you sound uh older than you probably look but you've been uh, of uh of not just not just a veteran of silicon yeah, valley i started when i was four years old so <laughs> yeah me too me too um but you've been a founder and executive and investor in uh, in lots of uh, venture funded um, tech startups you've been a contributor to TechCrunch and entrepreneur and fast company and and more recently um you are now an author um of your debut book yeah. uh bitflip and you and I were um, introduced by Sean Flynn from the Silicon Valley podcast. And I was really interested by your book because whilst it's, and, uh, you know, hopefully I get the sort of, I'll do a reasonable job on the summary, you know, fundamentally it's kind of a corporate thriller in the way that I love the way that you've written this rather than just being like a kind of fact-based uh, non-fiction, you know, it's a, it's a corporate thriller that sort of exposes the underbelly of the tech industry yeah. in Silicon Valley and the moral dilemmas that um, the main character Sam Fuse has got to face you know, almost underpinned by this question, like how far do you go uh, to achieve your dreams of, you know, success and wealth, um, yep. which which every founder listening to this uh, has been challenging, whether they're aware of it at the time, and they might just think of it as a difficult decision. We're facing moral dilemmas all the time and we're scaling our businesses, right? Like, you know, Absolutely. how far do I push that pricing or how, you know, how do, who, who do I hire in this circumstance? And is that actually discriminatory? But I really think they're the best person for all this sort of, all this sort of stuff. But yeah. Um, you know, I guess the, you know, the, your book touches on some 
important themes around um, artificial intelligence, as does your background and the ethical considerations that come with that. And there's no seven-figure founder, um, which is our typical audience, who's not thinking about artificial intelligence today. You know how they can leverage it, how it impacts their business or the or the businesses and lives of their customers. Um, and as they grapple that, they're coming across all these ethical issues, like how do I think about privacy? What do I open up my? Is, you know, is some AI tool going to integrate with my data set? And then what happens to that customer's data? And do I still own it? And where is that now? And yeah. what about biases and discrimination? And if if you know who's writing the rules of the thing? And if it's attaching itself to a data set that I own. Do I have enough data actually for that to, you know, to avoid biases or is it actually just going to be accelerating and perpetuating biases that I've already got? Right. Um, and so given your, this is a big setup, isn't it? <laughs> given your, <laughs> I love it. I, I don't know if I'm going to live up to the hype. <laughs> but given your last two kind of, you know, inverted commas, real jobs before becoming an author, were also focused around AI focused investment and incubation. I really today just wanted to kind of explore with you some potential AI use cases that people are thinking about, ethical decisions they might need to wrestle with, your sort of thoughts and philosophies around, you know, kind of where this might be heading and, and how we how we think about it if we're that kind of um, founder. How does that sound as a, as a setup? Yeah, it sounds great. And and it is rich soil to dive into. I mean, as you correctly state, um, AI has received a ton of attention, uh, not just by, by, from big enterprises and investors, but from you know, down to local mom and pop shops are looking for mm -hmm. ways that they can leverage AI to make their businesses more efficient. And there's because of that hype, there's also a lot of confusion around it. And um, I'm not surprised to hear that a lot of your listeners are looking to get up that learning curve as quickly as they can. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe just a little bit about, about my background, as you said, before yeah. becoming an author, um, I, I've been, you know, as you stated, yeah, in Silicon Valley a long time. Uh, doing various technology-based startups, um, several of which leveraged AI technology. I was at a company that, uh, called Intello that uh, does AI-based recruiting software. Um, mm -hmm. And then I uh, did two rounds as kind of an entrepreneur in residence or advisor maybe uh, at AI-focused investment and incubation funds. Uh, so right. one was called Symphony AI. Uh, it's about a billion-dollar fund. Um, focused on automating various service services industries. So a lot of what we did in researching mm. potential ideas for new companies was to look at various service intensive um, sectors from healthcare to shipping and logistics to, you know, agriculture and others and figure out how different AI technologies could be applied to those to really automate a lot of the jobs and that's in its in and itself one of the ethical considerations in AI. <laughs> it is, and then it? i was at another one uh founded by a stanford professor andrew eng uh who's one of the more notable luminaries in the ai field uh he created a fund called ai fund um which is again uh incubating a number of companies and, and investing in other companies um, that are AI focused. So um, I've definitely been in and around this space for a long time. I think, uh, geez, you touched on, on, on a lot of things there and people will have, uh, if anyone's been listening to the, um, to the recent few episodes, we interviewed um, Ryan uh, Robertson from Bitten, who's actually one of my clients and he's scaling a, a national pest control um, business. And I was surprised to learn that actually all of their scheduling because um, they have, you know, they've got technicians all over the place, you know, going to many appointments in a day. And so they use a, a very powerful AI scheduling tool to make sure they take 
the right job with the shortest route, but that it's safe, that it's judging traffic mm -hmm. problems. And, and that actually, that AI scheduling um, capability is a material um, advantage for them in, in their ability to, uh, to help people be more productive, to have their technicians not spend inordinate amount of time in traffic, which is not, you know, not good for their safety, not good for how they turn up to the next customer. Like it's a million different um, benefits to it. I, um, I, I've been amazed at how many small businesses, services businesses do seem to be using some sort of uh, technology, you know, whether it's quote unquote AI technically or just automation or, uh, mm. you know, chat technologies or other kinds of things. But I've seen it here in Silicon Valley, everything from, you know, a painter to a mobile dog grooming business that would have, you know, automated outreach to me via text message saying when their vehicle was going to be arriving to do the work, yep. um, automating their billing and payment process so that I get an invoice uh, into my uh, email or text and can kind of pay that with one click. And so a lot of those technologies you're seeing used by businesses that never would have been using the, that kind of technology even just a few years ago. And uh, it's certainly, you know, you're, you're coming up front about how the fact it's kind of permeating um, the business world right now, of course, because of the advent of um, ChatGPT and you yeah. know, there's been no faster, no faster user growth in any software to date, to my understanding, um, than ChatGPT. And I'm, you know, I was one of the first people to jump on Plus, and so I'm, you know, excited mucking around with GPT four um, on a constant basis. And of course, I have teenagers, and so my teenagers were straight onto it, and we had to have lots of conversations, and we're still having conversations about how this isn't a replacement for your thinking, and how it's <laughs> right. a, an enabler. And your schools are all over this thing, and they are looking for ways to to catch you, kind of. You know, plagiarizing and all the rest. Yeah. Um, but so, if we talk about you know some of the some of the let's talk about maybe some of those different um, uh, use cases. Uh, actually, can we talk about where natural language processing is kind of heading, like with things like ChatGPT, because it's on everybody's mind, right? So, um, if I think about, it feels like. Uh, correct me, I'm interested in your perspective. It feels like the next internet, right? Like it feels yeah. like such a big change, such a big acceptance of something that people probably found a bit scary before and all of a sudden have rapidly moved to because it's so easy and it feels comfortable for people. But I can only imagine that that means very rapidly we're going to have a sort of AI co-pilot, if you like, in all of the apps that we're using on a day-to-day -day basis. I would assume that we're going to be very quickly having you know, a chat GPT prompted response to the majority of our emails um, in Outlook that, you know, in Zoom, we'll end up with kind of real-time coaching about maybe, you know, what, what to say next, uh, you know, what's just been said, what's been inferred, how, what does that mean for body language? Talk to me about where you kind of see this, um, this kind of heading and particularly in this sort of natural language processing um, space. Well, yeah, I think chat GPT uh, by OpenAI really captured everyone's imagination, I think, to some degree, right? It was one of the first um, tools that you could, as a layperson, go play with and start to enter information, whether it was your teenager. I have uh, teenagers as well who've uh, played with it quite extensively, maybe too much in the academic uh, sense. <laughs> yeah. But um, it it is, when you see it for the first time, it's pretty transformational, right? I think a lot of the natural language processing stuff that had up to that point uh, been available and accessible was more sort of built for enterprises, right? It was really kind of behind closed doors, behind a big license. Um, mm. It was hard to train, hard to use. And it was really meant more for kind of internal, uh, understanding internal documents, 
and, and natural language versus um, externalizing and, and doing the creation of that content, the, gen the generative and the generative AI. And so I think it has really deservedly gotten a, a lot of attention and a lot of excitement. Um, and it's, it is a huge change, I think, for content creators, right? A lot of uh, small businesses in particular um, struggle with the challenge of content marketing and social, social media marketing, mm -hmm. right? The, that can be very effective, but it's incredibly labor intensive. Uh, I can attest to that firsthand. You know, I go out and promote my book and I've got to put blogs up in different places and I've got to do social yeah. media posts. And uh, sometimes your creative well just runs dry. Um, and, uh, you know, those tools, and there's a bunch of others out there, Jasper AI, um, copy.ai, uh, that you can use to create content. Now, you know, to my ear and I, as a, as an author, I look at it and it looks, you know, you can, and a lot of teachers will tell you this too, you know, we can tell when it's, uh, generative AI, um, but it's pretty good as a first draft. And you mm. know, that's how I've started using it in my own uh, promotional efforts okay. around as an author. Um, you know, I'll, I'll generate a first draft or I'll have it kind of go do a lot of legwork to pull in information that I might want to cite in my, uh, in my blog posts. I'm an active blogger as well. Um, so those so are no, pretty just, exciting applications. Just, just on that. So do you, do you, I mean, you obviously have the copy for your book. So do you, you know, somehow feed the copy, like the full text? I don't know how many thousand words that is, but I'm sure it's a lot of thousands. Um, do you feed that text into ChatGPT and go, okay, well, based on this text, give no, me some ideas I, about what I could write I, about? How do you, I, I haven't how do you done that yet, although I'm intrigued by it, right? As an author, you, you, you sometimes get the classic, you know, writer's block. And I think mm -hmm. that's where uh, an AI, a generative AI tool can be helpful. You can kind of give it a prompt and it can help you maybe break through and maybe it doesn't write the perfect thing for you, but it gets your mm -hmm. creative juices flowing and you can kind of iterate or edit uh, it from there. Mm -hmm. um, I did for the publishing of, of BitFlip, uh, actually when it got around to producing the audiobook, um, I used a tool whose um, name is escaping me at the moment, but that... Um, where I uploaded the, the manuscript of the book and I uploaded the audio recording of the book and it was able to identify for me uh, discrepancies basically between the written page and the, uh, and the audio track. Um, and that was incredibly, incredibly helpful. I mean, you think, you know, the audio book, I think clocked in at nine hours. That's a lot of time to go listen to yeah. it all. But with this tool, I could accelerate, you know, I could just jump to the next place where there was a gap that it noticed between um, the audio recording and the and the written word, and then it gave me tools for reconciling that. I could say, "Oh no, you, you misunderstood. That's correct," or um, yeah. you know, I could I could make the edit. I could mark it for my narrator who recorded the audio to go back and re-record sections if they were if they were um, incorrect. So you know, tools mm. like that are are being used in the editing, proofreading. Uh, parts of publishing. And, um, you know, there's a lot of excitement about it in the publishing world. And there's a lot of angst about it in the publishing world, as there mm. is in academia and other sectors. Yeah. What so if you think about from a, let's say we've got a bunch of business owners uh, listening to this thinking, yeah, I, you know, I, maybe they're starting the process of starting to use it with their marketing, they're mm. using it for sort of um, ideation, uh, maybe rather than kind of completed writing. What do you think the 
what are the risks here and what are some of the you know the 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 ethical or moral considerations that we have to think about as business owners if we were to get a bit sort of overzealous or really thinking okay we want to double down on this and really you know turn it into something that's actually quite you know maybe rather than just me every now and again like it's actually built into our content yeah um, sort of generation system or workflow i think a big and maybe less intuitive risk is is really to read it right i mean to to trust it right i think that there's um you know i i uh did a prompt right before we got on this call to sort of um see you know see if i might be able to use it for an upcoming blog post and you know, asked it to do something where I was asking the algorithms to basically have some discretion, right? I said, what are the five best thriller novels, you know, of the, of the last year or whatever? Mm-hmm. Ooh, there's no right answer to that, right? That's a lot of judgment mm-hmm. and discretion and um, opinion that's baked into that. And um, so I think that's where you want to make sure that what you're creating and the content that you're putting your name on uh, ultimately represents something that you truly believe in. Um, and you're not just yeah. saying generate and, and, you know, kind of off you go. Um, you know, in, in the other area that there's a lot of ethical considerations and concern is obviously in copyright and, and IP, intellectual property. Um, so, you know, there isn't great transparency in the tools as they stand today. I I know this is an area that all the companies, you know, we've, we've touched on are looking to improve, but where did that content come from? Right. You know, is, is Mm. it, you know, truly just repurposed is how much it is excerpted. Um, and especially when it comes to those subtle things like, uh, analysis and opinion, where, you know, who, whose opinion is it that's being echoed into or, you know, summarized into this, this new content? Because ultimately mm. what it's doing is just generating content from the content to digest. So like any computer mm. program, it's only as good as the data that goes into it. Uh, and, yeah. and I think that'll be an area where you'll see some of the AI tools really improve is to provide citations, provide um, you know, better transparency into how that yeah. content is being created. And also there's a, um, that's such an interesting point because if you think about, uh, if you think about the, that principle of saying, well, if I get chat GPT uh, or, you know, some other kind of NLP tool to give me its assessment, which is based on all its available data that it's you know, scoured from the internet at a point in time, we know that you know ChatGPT at the moment is sort of the, the data cut. To my understanding, is like September twenty one or something like right. that. So it's also still like two years, you know, eighteen months old. Uh, so be careful if you're relying upon it for anything that's up to date and accurate. Because I've I've run a few tests on that to you know, look for examples of different things. Where I've been writing a blog and go, give me some examples of companies that kind of have these characteristics and nine out of 10 have been completely incorrect or mm-hmm. the company's changed direction or the data is just totally wrong. But um, I guess more to the point, if you don't have a distinctive opinion, um, then essentially what you're doing is you, you're kind of almost by default becoming more generic because you're getting everybody else's ideas and then you're synthesizing them down to something that's, that's probably right. ends up being a generic version of everybody else's distinctive <laughs> right. views. And you become just a generic producer of stuff. Um, that's a, that's a bit of a brand uh, that's a bit of a brand risk. Like you know, what what do you want to stand for? Who do you want to be known as? And what what does this all mean for trust? Because 
content is one thing. Um, and I feel like we're at this pivot point where because we're so saturated with, um, like there still seems to be, you know, every marketer that I talk to, I still get two different opinions. I get some who are still saying um, uh, the rhythm is the key. Like it's got to be weekly or it's got to, you know, if it's, if it's weekly, it's got to be every single week and you can't miss a beat and it's, you know, it's got to be all predictable. Yeah. And then other people are going, forget about all that. It's just about quality. Like if you had to do it like once every, as long as it's good quality and it gets cut through and so on, that's far more important than volume and consistency. And I feel like we're at this sort of intersection where because we're so overwhelmed with content all the time, that quality lever really is going to have to go up. And so that's quite a risk if you start relying on chat. GPT, oh, I think that's a, that that's a better articulation of the first point I was trying to make is that um, you're right. There's almost a dilutive effect to the process of generating content through AI. And, you know, the, the very real net effect of this, there already is sort of more content created than we can consume on any topic. Mm. Right. Um, and, you know, if the, as these tools sort of facilitate more content creation, then the, um, you know, threshold to stand out from that sea of information is even harder, right? And if you're, yeah. if your process is to kind of take this distillation of an AI generated output and throw that out and expect it to get a lot of pickup and coverage, you know, that's going to be, that's already hard to do. And it's probably going to just be harder and harder to do. You know, I think that's why I see these tools as sort of a starting off point um, mm. that you can edit and iterate from. Uh, and or, you know, inspiration, you know, giving you uh, thoughts and ideas that you can maybe extrapolate from uh, after that initial creative spark. Um, but it's certainly not at the point, and may get to the point faster than we think, but where you can just sort of rely on it fully. I, I actually think there's sort of an inverse thing that you're going to start to see um, AI technologies turn their attention to, which is consumption of all this content, right? How, how, you know, I think I mentioned to you right before I, I moved recently, you know, I would need to buy a new microwave oven. Like what's the mm -hmm. best microwave oven, right? Go, can, can, mm. can, can I have a tool that's going to go out and not give me what advertisers want, but actually, you know, consume the content, read the ratings and the reviews and everything else and make recommendations based on my personal needs and preferences and requirements, mm. you know, mm. that, I think you're going to start to see companies address the other side of the equation too. It's not just content that's created and less and less of, and less of it's being read, but tools for consumers and buyers at any level in, within companies and others mm -hmm. to help them digest what's out there. And, and I, I actually think this is a really interesting, you know, a lot's been made out of Microsoft's investment uh, in, in, in open AI and how for, fortunate that is and how scared Google is. I think for advertising-based businesses like Google and Facebook, uh, this is potentially an existential threat. You know, it seems strange to say about mm. some of the biggest companies in the world, but their entire model is to get get consumers in front of advertisers, right? And I think yeah. AI technology opens the possibility of consumers actually finding what they want to find rather than what advertisers want them to find. And I think it's a threat to any well, ad-based yeah. business. And I think this is a um, this is where this is where it's going to be a difficult place to navigate, right? Because what does ChatGPT or you know whatever the tool ends up being that you use to search for your microwave or you know I need a project manager to run a construction project for me or whatever it happens to be? Yeah. Um, 
what does the AI tool consider uh, credible, you know, quality? How, how, how does it come to that determination? Is it because it sees a certain amount of volume? Is it because it's being like, you know, how capable is it in determining, you know, quality? So we, at the moment, we all sort of trust Google's um, ranking system to kind of bring us, you know, stuff, of course, that hits page one. We're all like, oh, that must have more credibility, blah, blah, blah. So we end up sort of, you know, spending most of our time on page one. But what does ChatGPT how does it think about? It? Does it also go well if it's on Google's page? Well, it's probably going to be uplifted in terms of its likelihood of being recommended by us, or is it, you know, completely even-handed? And you know, to your point, I bought a. Um, uh, I do a lot of video um, processing and audio and stuff on my computer, and I'd bought a laptop a couple of years ago, and it was just starting to got grown under the weight mm-hmm. of the amount of processing that I do, and I was really starting to get frustrated with just lag and and drive me crazy. So I went to ChatGPT and I was like, all right. I need a high, you know, I don't want a Mac, um, but, you know, I'm familiar with Windows environments. I need a Windows-based laptop that's got, you know, high processing speed for these kinds of use cases. And I used it, to your point, to get me to, to get it to narrow down a significant number of options down to a few, give me tables, give me comparisons and all the rest so I could then go out and check those out in the, you know, inverted commas, real world. Um, but as But it's something that's really important, I think, for as this shift starts to happen and as people start, like I am already training myself to before I put something into Google, the moment I'm about to write it, I go straight to ChatGPT first and I try to see if I can get a slightly more intelligent response than I was going to get in Google. And I think that's just going to continue to happen and we're going to be forcing our team members to do the same. It's like, hey, before you search for it, before you actually start to write anything, start with something like ChatGPT. See if you can improve the quality of the question you were going to ask or yep. the the parameters that you give it. And so you actually end up with less research time with a better quality response that you can then take and make some intelligent decisions around. Yep. But understanding how it's actually going to make those decisions will be really hard for us to know as business owners. Or what does that mean if we want to be one of the credible responses? <laughs> how do we ensure that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to that point, I did something, you know, I've done something in the last month that I hadn't done in the last 10 years, which is use Bing to search for stuff. Right. I mean, (laughs) I, I like almost everyone considered Bing to be a dead failed experiment. And now all of a sudden I will hit moments with Google where I I just get frustrated. I, I find it not always useful for searches that required discretion, required judgment. Um, and you know, there's, there have been so many, uh, vendors that have, you know, uh, optimized their content for SEO that you feel like you're just kind of getting, uh, regurgitated, uh, the same set of results, you know, uh, 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 that too many people have sort of exploited Google's tools to, mm-hmm. um, drive traffic their way. And I think, um, there's a lot of, frustration from users about that sort of stuff and desire to find other alternatives. If we put our heads back in the business owner space, um, talk to me about biases and how, so, you know, I I feel like one of the, one of the things that people will really be trying to, and I know I've I've spoken with lots of clients about this, you know, clients who have great, good, you know, good sized data sets, for example, you know, they've, they've got, 500 staff who are all doing a similar thing like how is the intelligence of the thing that they do being captured and is there a way for them to then having that decent sized data set to do something with an ai tool that helps you know helps improve training helps improve decision making helps to kind of get the wisdom if you think about most service-based businesses it's usually based on selling people's kind of knowledge and time yeah um 
And so how you capture that knowledge over time, how you capture the decision-making processes, the way people are making you know, intelligent um, judgment, you know, how you might capture that in a data set and then use some kind of an AI tool to be able to interrogate it um, in a more a different way. But I'm really interested as to, let's assume that that's something that we can perhaps already do or is certainly going to continue to evolve. What does that mean from a biases perspective? I mean, talk to me a bit about how biases play out in that kind of scenario. Yeah, yeah well, you know, it's a, it's, it's pretty simple at some level, right? The, the most AI uh, systems learn by observing, right? They need the human input to say, this is the outcome we're looking for. This is good. This is bad. Um, and that, and that trains the model, how to replicate the human decision-making that it's trying to, to automate. Mm. Um, and so you're precisely right. Sometimes when data gets fed into a model, you can suddenly see that, you know, humans are, you know, it's very hard, difficult to make decisions without bias, right? Our amygdala brains mm. are wired <laughs> to sort of make quick decisions sometimes um, for our survival instinct. If you think about it from a biological standpoint, you know, there's good reason uh, over the millennia for, for why human brains and animal brains in general are wired, wired a certain way. Um, but you're absolutely right. You can you can certainly see bias. And I I was um, for a while I mentioned um, at a company that used AI to automate the hiring process, and that is an area mm. fraught with potential bias. Right? If you look at okay, yeah. Can you give us some examples? Yeah, you know, some of these were were sort of famous. I think it was Amazon discovered they they had an internal recruiting recruiting tool that they put together that was you know over indexing to sort of white male applicants, uh, essentially. Right. And so, mm. um, the, the tool that we developed, uh, in some ways helped, uh, eliminate that bias by, um, obfuscating that information from decision makers, right. It would take right. things that could be, um, it could allow the human decision maker to introduce bias, like names, uh, ethnicity, relig religious background, yeah. whatever it might mm -hmm. be, um, and uh, sort of anonymize that so that they'd really be evaluating a candidate based on their inherent traits and experience rather than any, um, you know, any other factors. So um, that's very interesting. You know, I think those kinds of decisions that are so consequential for both the company and for the hire um, are a yeah. really interesting place to make sure that there isn't any bias being introduced. You know, I think there's also though, uh, AI gets a little bit of a bad rap for the negative side of that, but it also can be a tool to ameliorate those, those issues, right? By feeding that data in companies discover, mm. oh gosh, we, we actually have some of these biases already. It isn't the AI fault. It's sort of baked into our hiring managers and other kinds of things. And so maybe we need to do a better job in our training and sensitivity training and diversity and inclusion training and other kinds of things to make sure that the human decision makers uh, responsible for those business processes aren't, you know, inadvertently, perhaps even against their, you know, not not consciously uh, making biased decisions. So AI can be a tool yeah. that can reinforce that bias, or it can be a tool that sort of shines light on that potential bias and is an instigator for, for change and, and improvement. It sounds like, you know, there's a, the taking of the conscious, you know, I, like anything, right. It's the, 
it's the conscious application uh, as opposed to, oh, I've got some silver bullet that's going to fix everything for me and let's just let it you know kind of do its thing. How do I consciously apply this in a way that actually really gives thought to those things? Because they may be new. You know, if, if you're a business where you've got, I don't know, 50 people and you've never really actually stopped to think about biases full stop, you know, in your hiring process, but then you look around and you've got a whole bunch of homogenous, you know, like everybody's the same color. They're all yeah. in the same age range. They all come from the same city and they, you know, and all of a sudden you go, wow, there's, there's not a lot of diversity going on here. How much of this is the available market versus the way that we hire, the way that we write the ads to the way that we interview the clients to, you know, right. and, and the bigger you, the bigger you get, the bigger that problem is, right? Because it's sort of, you can't see what's happening. So I like that idea of being able to unpack actually what's happening before you then decide how you retrain uh, or optimize um, for the outcome that you want. Yeah, and that's another interesting use case. I mean, the another thing that this company did was had a tool for generating um, emails to applicants, to candidates. And um, it would flag language that was potentially um, not discriminatory or overtly biased, but maybe subtly uh, off-putting to certain candidates, you know, one that I was stuck in my mind was the use of the term rock star. Like we're looking for a rock star. Well, that phrase didn't resonate as much with female candidates as it did with male candidates. And mm. so little mm. things like that can, you know, sneak into language of a job posting or an email and, you know, adversely impact the, the outcome. So, candidates off. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. And so, I think that's another really interesting area for AI in more of the, as you get more into editing is really to look at and flag for you potential, um, you know, misuses. And there's, there are a lot of tools out there that do that sort of thing. And in, in my occupation as a writer, you know, you'll, you'll see things that'll in Grammarly and other kinds of tools that'll prompt you like, Hey, you're, you could, you know, word this sentence more efficiently, you know, that aren't mm -hmm. wrong per se, but there's maybe just a better way mm. to phrase it. Mm. What about privacy? Um, you know, I imagine a circumstance where let's let's assume we're using a tool. You know, we, we've we've built a big data set, so we've got some strong kind of company IP um, that helps unpack. You know, what it is that we're, how we're behaving, how we're making decisions, and so on. We're then using some kind of an AI tool to make the most of that data set in helping optimize the efficiency of our business, whether it's in service delivery or operations or you know, how, kind of how we do what we do. But then all of a sudden we've got, we've got a whole bunch of information that might be sensitive and, you know, privacy of course is a big concern for every uh, in every country and uh, the introduction of some pretty serious consequences for companies that don't take privacy seriously, I think is, has woken up certainly enterprise. I mean, enterprise is really kind of all over it, but yeah. the smaller end of town, maybe not, you know, not quite as conscious or not quite as literate for lots of reasons because they're you know, doing a million things. But how do you see privacy uh, sort of playing out and, and you know, particularly in that kind of model where you're, you may be leveraging a data set that's, that's yours inadvertently, your customer's data, but all of a sudden what, where does that data end up and can you still do it? It's a, it is a very tangled uh, subject for sure. This, this We actually snagged on this in one of the pilot projects that we were doing for one of the AI firms I mentioned. We were looking at um, call data. We wanted to do analysis of phone calls mm. into customer service centers. And the client discovered they didn't really have the right to use those private conversations, you know, in to, to train an AI mm -hmm. model, right? That they... And ultimately, yep. you know, that that project kind of got um, sidelined because of that privacy consideration. You know, it's a it's a real thing. And I think that from a legal standpoint, companies need to start to 
um, maybe look a little bit into the future and figure out how they might be um, might need to use their own data and their customers' data to to for use within AI uh, applications um, and write that into their terms of service. Right? I mean, a, a small business needs to anticipate what they might need to do um, so that they don't have are they aren't limited themselves. But of course, anytime you get into privacy, you also get into trust, right? You need to, you want to make sure that um, the people whose data you are capturing understand that you're capturing it, uh, understand how it's being used, um, have the ability to opt out. Uh, as you point out, there's privacy regulations all around the world, uh, unique to geography, you know, unique in Europe, unique in California. Um, so it is a very, very tangled, um, you know, set of of rules that you deal with. I think I think that's another reason, not to go back to the generative AI stuff, but I think that's another reason that those tools have um, been able to make as much progress as they have as quickly as they have. Is that you know they're just sort of consuming the public internet, right? There there isn't they don't mm-hmm. face those sort of privacy concerns because the inputs are already in the public domain, um, and so I think that is um, a really important consideration for businesses. Um, no customer, especially enterprise customer, wants to feel like their data is being used for the benefit of other customers of that company. Um, you think about a company like, you know, Salesforce.com, right? I mean, how they they have arch rivals who are both customers of theirs, right? And so mm-hmm. they they need absolute um, barriers between those different businesses as they develop AI. So there's there, I think, you know, one of the things that you you'll see more and more of um, a lot of companies, especially consumer internet companies uh, uh, that were dealing with sensitive user data had chief privacy officers. And I think you'll see yeah. more and more kind of chief ethical officers or chief AI officers who are there to, you know, make sure that the business is abiding by the law to start with, mm. but also I- implementing best practices for how they, um, manage that data and how they utilize it for training AI models. It feels like there's a, you know, there's going to be some emerging um, roles, right? Like, you know, people of uh, and whether they're outsourced roles and they're kind of outsourced to sort of consultants and so on. But so one, of course, you know, people are very concerned around uh, cybersecurity as they should be, but this, you know, which feeds into this discussion because again, you know, you have a breach and all of a sudden your customer's data is all over the internet, to your point, that's a trust problem. So cybersecurity might yeah. be the the barrier between you and the trust problem, but this is also, um, you know, how do you, how do you maintain trust? It's almost like the center point is trust. You end up with this sort of, you know, trust team that includes, you know, cybersecurity knowledge. It includes, um, you know, data sovereignty and, and privacy knowledge. It includes, you know, maybe appropriate ethical uses of AI. Do you end up with some kind of a, small subcommittee or advisors on your advisory board or something like that, that have got some of these specializations, but, yeah. all of them. but um, it feels like, I think, you know, one of the things that's really jumping out to me from this conversation is that the starting point is how do we ensure that we maintain trust yes. with our customers, whether we're using it for marketing, whether it's about protecting the data, whether it's about leveraging the data, you know, do we have rights to use the data? If we're going to start implementing tools that are going to change the way that we make decisions or improve, hopefully, the way that we make decisions, how do we do this in a way where we maintain trust at all times? Because it's broken trust that causes the biggest problems. And certainly in any kind of services uh, business where, you know, 
people are buying you and the trust in you that your people are going to be able to do what you said they're going to be able to do, um, or, or your, you know, or your technology enabled, uh, people, then that's a real problem. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, I mean, the, this is only going to become more and more acute. And I, and I, I think that this is an interesting question for a lot of businesses, especially small businesses is, you know, does the application of AI that they're considering enhance trust with their customers or potentially diminish it, right? Um, and I think there are some examples where for a smaller business, um, that, that, that human touch may still be what very much differentiates that customer experience. And so um, mm. for that type of business, you know, the focus should be on how do you leverage AI to enable a more effective customer interaction rather than to you know, replace, replace that, it. exactly that customer interaction. Yeah. I am so with you on that. And I think, you know, one of the, you know, it, it pre G pre chat GPT, you know, the biggest fear I think of people when it came, you know, in the, let's call it the kind of the population, the consumer base was, you know, there's some AI tools going to replace my job, yada, yeah. yada. And I always, I always thought of this as like the whole point of technologies like artificial intelligence is to give us capacity to be more human because there are things that we can do that a tool can't but if we have expensive resources spending a lot of time doing things that actually computers would be far better at mm -hmm. that's an inefficient new resource and what you're robbing the person of doing is actually being having the opportunity to be a hero with customers because they're spending all this time doing administration and stuff that can be done with workflow tools and you know doing the research trying to make better decisions like how do we help them have more positive, more powerful, more engaging customer interactions, which is actually, to your point, that's where the magic is. That's what the AI tool hopefully <laughs> won't yeah. be able to do in the future because it requires that sort of intersection of you know judgment and experience and understanding and empathy and emotional intelligence and all these other things that is yep. certainly a lot harder. Yeah, I'll give, a, a, I'll, you know, I'll give an example being on the consumer side recently. I was trying to get you know my, my um, cable TV service going and you know, the experience, I won't name the name of the vendor, but, uh, uh, you know, the, the, their approach seemed to be, we will 100% automate, uh, this customer interaction through a chat, you know, a, a chat bot mm -hmm. or on phone, the person will have to look it up, right? They will, they'll have to ask me for my account number, my phone number, my so last for my social, my last name, my address, et cetera. That should be information that's right at their fingertips, right? And so mm. neither experience was ideal, right? The fully automated mm. chatbot couldn't figure out what I needed. And the human interaction required a bunch of questions that should have been at their fingertips. And so I, yeah. I really think that hybrid experience is probably the right uh, solution for a lot of especially customer-facing interactions where um, that agent is able to tell you what you need, answer your question, anticipate maybe what, you, what you're calling about, um, but still mm -hmm. provide it through a human interaction versus an automated interaction. And you know where I reckon one of the best places to figure out what these things are? Because I think you know, one of your one of the things we were chatting about offline is, well, yeah, should I use? Um, yes, there's AI tools that can do lots of things, but actually, should this be? Should I be just making a human decision here, or should I actually be looking for a tool? Like, is it actually appropriate and or warranted or valuable to use that tool? But one of the things that I think is absolutely illuminating. As you scale your business, you're just going to get further and further away from the front line. And so what you lose Correct. sight of is actually all of the inefficiencies, the missed opportunities in a conversation, the magic in the conversation, how customers are feeling. 
just sit and listen to the people who are on the phone, whether or go out with them in the field and just watch everything they do mm-hmm. for a day. Mm-hmm. And you will be amazed at all of the low hanging fruit of opportunities of stuff that could be automated, improved. Like, yeah, we did this. Geez, I remember doing this exercise almost 10 years ago in, um, we had a 70 seat call center uh, that we'd set up for an education business. And we, we did exactly that exercise. And we realized that actually our team was spending, it was, an, it was like almost hours a day leaving voicemails. Yeah. And the voicemails were almost identical. And I was like, why are we spending two hours a day leaving voicemails? Because, you know, customers obviously, you know, they don't always pick up their phone. I was like, can't we just, you know, can't we just make, still do it in their voice, record an MP3. And then when it, when the, when the computer hears the busy signal or the, you know, here's the, it's about to get a voicemail signal. It just leaves the voicemail and they get fed the next call. And that in and of itself made such a big impact. I mean, they enjoyed it because they didn't have to leave all these voicemails, which were really in, in reality, other than saying, hi, John, everything else was the same. Hey, you made an inquiry. You're just getting in touch with you. Ask you some questions about what. So we recorded an MP3 for all of them. But um, it was still felt personal enough in the way that it was delivered, and all and of a sudden, vastly more efficient, no doubt. Yeah, yeah. No, I I am a big believer too. In addition to the hybrid experience, that you know, it, you can't if you don't have normal intelligence for a business process, you can't artificial. You can't add artificial intelligence to it, right? <laughs> like, I, I was a yeah. I, I ran a, um, a CEO of a company where uh, one of my groups was our customer service department. And we would do what we called fly-alongs where you'd sit in and you'd listen in on the phone conversations that our agents would have mm-hmm. with customers. And it was remarkable to, to witness it from their perspective. They had to log into three different systems oftentimes because billing was in one area, you know, service yeah. provisioning was in another system, um, interaction, you know, the customer CRM database was in another system. And that was why the calls took so long. They were so grossly inefficient. You know, so fixing some of those things really made our, our process a lot more efficient. And so, mm-hmm. you know, for, for businesses that sort of face that, AI might be sort of a bridge too far right now, right? The, the first step might be mm-hmm. uh, oftentimes is to get your internal house in order, really figure out how you can run that business process, whatever it is, whether it's, you know, we've touched on a few scheduling or customer service or marketing, uh, you know, content marketing or other kinds of things, get it to be a well-oiled machine. And then AI can be an accelerant to that. Sometimes AI tools can be a convenient layer over those systems though too. And I think that's Mm. where, you know, I use the example of like a cable TV provider they probably do have a lot of arcane systems that are too expensive to upgrade or, or overhaul. And so having an AI system that's able to see, okay, here's the customers who's calling based on the caller ID. Here's the issue they might be calling about because we know in our service database, there was an outage in their area or whatever it might be, you know, to combine those and roll those up for an agent so that they can, you know, guess with, you know, an educated guess what the customer is calling about. Yeah. Absolutely. So what I'm hearing there, and I think that's, I think that's hundred uh, percent the case, right? You know, kind of automation, you know, workflow automation and getting your data sort of in order first, like try to make it efficient for them. And then if there's an opportunity to accelerate or improve or enhance um, or advance the way things are done, um, then, you know, then look for tools that can, that can do that. Yeah. I'm conscious of the amount of time we've got uh, left, Mike, and uh, I'm really enjoying this conversation. Is there anything else that you think that you'd really like to leave people with or a hard question or something that I haven't asked you that you think has been missed 
from this conversation that would be valuable for founders trying to scale up? Well, I think, AI? you know, I think that AI is, you likened it to the start of the internet. I mean, it does feel like we're at a very um, big inflection point in terms of this technology and its potential to, to change and improve lives. There are going to be a lot of uh, potential negative consequences and ethical considerations and things that we've talked about. But I think on the whole, it's going to be very transformative. And you've seen a lot of technologies, you know, back to the the printing press and the cotton gin and others where people have said, you know, this is going to cost jobs. This is going to drive people out of business. But in fact, what usually happens is as productivity increases, uh, you know, up uh, job training improves, uh, everybody sort of up levels and, and everybody's sort of quality of life has improved. The business efficiency has improved. Um, and so I think it's wise to go into this brave new world with eyes wide open, but I think there's going to be a lot of exciting opportunities for businesses of all sizes. I love that, Mike. Thank you so much for spending your time with us. Um, how would people um, get in touch with you or, or follow along with what you're doing? Obviously, where would you, where would you direct them to? I'd direct them um, to, direct read the book to my website. Yeah, my uh, website, miketrig.com with two Gs is a great place to see my writing on a bunch of topics, including AI, um, uh, but also my uh, writing work. And uh, there's a link to my books there and, and um, videos on YouTube and all that sort of stuff. So that's a one one uh, one stop shop for all things Mike Trigg. Beautiful. Thanks so much, Mike. Folks, if you enjoyed the show today, uh, number one, please uh, join me in uh, in thanking Mike for his time. If you enjoyed today, you could just do one of three things that would be a great way to thank uh, Mike for, uh, for for sharing his time. You can hit the subscribe button on your podcast app so actually other people hear his um, his episode. You can leave us a review or share Mike's episode with someone who you know would love it and maybe is thinking about AI and the use in their business um, at the moment. That would mean the world uh, to all of us here. Please join me in thanking Mike Trigg. You've been uh, on the Scalots podcast today. I'm Sean Steele. I look forward to speaking with you again next week. Thanks again, Mike. Thanks. G'day, everyone. Just a couple of quick things before you go. If you have questions that you'd love myself or an upcoming guest to tackle about challenges that you're facing in scaling your business, please just jump straight on the website, scaleupspodcast.com. You can record your message straight from your mobile by hitting the button on the right-hand side of the page, or you can just email them the old-fashioned way, questions at scaleupspodcast.com. And just a quick reminder, nothing we spoke about today constitutes financial or business advice. If you are considering making big decisions in your business, seek out a professional who can look at your situation in detail and make sure you're getting sound, personalized advice. Thanks for listening. Look forward to being back in your podcast feed next week.